thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, here in Acts chapter 8, we have a significant change in the early church. We started to notice, if you've been paying attention with what's been going on, there's this slow-growing persecution that's been taking place. It started with Peter and John when the religious leaders threatened them severely, uh, and then uh, all of the apostles are arrested, and it grows because they're all beaten. And as we saw at the end of chapter 7, it's grown even more to the point where Stephen is killed for his faith in Jesus. Well, now as we start Acts chapter 8, we're going to see the start of a full-blown persecution against the early church. And this persecution is headed up by Saul. And if you remember at the end of chapter 7, Saul was ultimately the one overseeing the murder of Stephen. So let's start chapter 8 looking at what Saul does and how he leads this huge persecution uh, against the early church. Now Saul was consenting to his death, speaking of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Luke starts off telling us that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. Now it's interesting because this Greek word translated consenting means to be pleased with, to applaud, to approve together with others, to consent. So Saul just didn't consent or, or you know, say, well, okay, we're, we're going to do this. He was pleased with this. This was something that he was happy to do to kill Stephen, who he thought was leading people in Judaism away from the truth. So, you know, we live in a world full of Saul's, live in a world full of people who hate Christians, full of people who are pleased when Christians suffer, full of people who like to inflict suffering upon Christians. But an important question to ask ourselves is how do we respond to these type of people? Do we ask God to strike them down? Do we say, if I weren't a Christian, I'd... Do we just ignore them? Do we say nothing but deep down inside our our hatred towards them grows? Remember last chapter how Stephen responds to those who are stoning him to death, to those who are doing this wicked thing, to Saul who was overseeing it. He says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Stephen responds to those who are doing this horrible thing to them with forgiveness and with love. And that's exactly what we saw when Jesus was on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's how God wants us to respond to our enemies. You know, something for important for us to understand is the true test of love is not how do you love those who love you back? Not how do you love your family? How do you love people who already love you? The true test of love is how do you love those who hate you? How do you love those who are your enemies? How do you love those who persecute you? How do you love those who want to destroy your life? Last week I mentioned that I believe that Stephen's love, Stephen's forgiveness, Stephen's prayer was one of the big things that God used to take Saul and make him into the Apostle Paul. We need to understand that our response to the Saul's of this life 
is so important. But too often we give up on people like Saul. Too often we see them, we see their actions, we see their behavior, we see their attitude towards Christianity and Christians, and we just give up on people like that. Many times I've heard people say, and I've heard it, and I've said it as well, that person could never get saved. Or why do you waste your time with those people? They're never going to change. Or why don't you just give up spending your time on them and spend it on someone else? That's what they said about Saul. Hey, that guy's never going to change. Look at him. We're going to see how horrible he gets in this chapter, in the next chapter. But yet God does a transforming work in the life of Saul. Don't give up on non-Christians you know. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop loving them. Don't stop reaching out to them with the gospel. Don't stop forgiving them. If you have a family member or a friend or a coworker, and you think, you know what, this person's never going to change. I've been praying for them for years. I've been reaching out to them for years. I've shared the gospel with them for years, and they're not receptive. They're never going to change. They're just going to continue down this path. Don't give up on them. Remember how God can change people. Remember Saul. Remember the transformation that's going to take place in his life. God can save even the most wicked people. I think a modern day example of how God can do a great work through individuals is of the life of a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you are probably familiar with her story. Jim Elliot, her husband, Roger Udarian, Peter Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, they were five missionaries who went deep into the jungles of Ecuador to preach to the natives. And on Sunday, January 8th, 1956, they finally get an encounter. These five men get to share with these natives. They come in contact with these natives, and these natives kill all of them. When Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, heard her husband was murdered, she responded in a way that is just amazing to comprehend. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about someone that you love dearly. And if they were to go out and reach a group of people, go out to share the love of Jesus with that group of people, and that group of people responded by murdering that loved one, by murdering that person that was so dear to you. If that person had that happen to them, how would you respond to the people who did that? How would you feel towards them? What would be your attitude towards them? Well, Elizabeth Elliot had all the reason in the world to hate these people. She had all the reason in the world to not want to reach these people. She had all the reason in the world to think they're never going to change. They had their opportunity. My husband and these other four men shared the gospel, were there with them, and they murdered them. But instead of hating them and giving up on them, she went and she lived with them. She showed them the love of Christ. And this tribe, and especially the leaders in the tribe, they just couldn't understand how this woman would live with them, how this woman would love them, how this woman would want to be near them when they killed her husband. And that love that she displayed to them and the gospel that she shared with them ultimately led to the entire tribe getting saved. These murderers of Christians got saved, just like Saul, who we're going to see is a murderer of Christians, got saved. But with both, it took someone to show the love and forgiveness of Christ to see that happen. What do you think would have happened if Elizabeth Elliot responded differently? If she said, forget these people, they had their opportunity, they had their chance, I'm not going to forgive them, I'm not going to reach them, I'm not going to share the gospel with them. God can save even the most wicked and lost people, so don't give up on them. Don't stop showing them love, don't stop showing them forgiveness. You never know the impact you will make on them. 
So after Stephen was stoned to death and Saul was pleased by it, we're told that a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. So Stephen's death is only the beginning. It's the catalyst of something much greater. This great persecution now starts among the early church there in Jerusalem. And because of this great persecution, the believers were basically all in Jerusalem and they start to scatter. They scatter to Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, and to the region north, which is Samaria. And so they're spread out because of the persecution that's being headed up by Saul. Luke goes on to share a few more responses to Stephen's death. Verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So Luke reveals there were two different responses to the death and the murder of Stephen. First, there was one of lamentation. There were some who lamented that. They were saddened by that. They did not want to see Stephen killed. But Saul had a different response. As we already noted, he was pleased with Stephen's death. But also, this was a springboard for Paul, we're told, to make havoc on the church. This phrase made havoc comes from the Greek word that refers to an army destroying a city or a wild animal tearing at its prey. And so Luke is saying that Saul is now viciously attacking the Christians of the early church. And we're told that he went into houses and he dragged out men and women who believed in Jesus Christ and he threw them into prison. Now, at first glance, this whole situation looks horrible. All the things that have been happening in the early church so far, we see all these amazing blessings, we see all these people getting saved, and now all of a sudden Stephen gets killed, and there's this huge persecution that takes place. Paul, or Saul, is going in people's homes with soldiers and ripping them out of their homes and imprisoning them. The church is being persecuted. Men are now, and women are now, scattering from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, And I'm sure the thought came into their mind, how can any good come out of this? Because that's oftentimes what we think. When we go through persecution, when we go through hardship, when we go through suffering, this thought comes into our mind, how can any good come out of a circumstance or situation like Stephen's death, like the persecution of the early church? You know, something important for us to understand is that God can take what Satan or the world means for evil and use it for good. Romans 8.28 is a wonderful passage of Scripture. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God can take horrible and difficult circumstances that those who love Him, that those who believe in Him, and He can take those things and He can turn them to good. He can use them for good. Well, verse 4 reveals the good that that God brought in the midst of this horrible persecution, it says this, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now notice this, that this persecution is forcing these believers who were in Jerusalem to go everywhere to do what? To preach the word of God, to share the gospel. Now I want you to remember something. If you remember back in Acts chapter 8, Jesus gives a command to his followers. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit, but then they are to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to share 
the gospel. But up to this point, they haven't been obedient to that. They've only been sharing in Jerusalem. They've only been working in Jerusalem. They've only been ministering in Jerusalem. They have not branched out beyond the city of Jerusalem. But notice this persecution that Satan is trying to use to destroy the early church, to stop them from sharing the gospel, from to hinder them from getting the gospel out. God uses his persecution to get them beyond Jerusalem, into the region of Judea, up to the region of Samaria, to reach more people with the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, I find that one of the biggest things that impacts the world around us is what we do in the midst of suffering, how we respond in the midst of difficulty. It's something that God uses to impact the world around us in powerful ways. When God allows our lives to be shaken from difficulty, from hardship, from persecution, the question we shouldn't be asking is, God, why is this happening to me? The question we should be asking is, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? How do you want to work in me through this? Not why is it happening, but Lord, it is happening. And what do you want to do through it to help me grow, to become more like you? I want you to notice this persecution hits as believers are scattered out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. We're told that the apostles stay in Jerusalem. And I wanted you to note that because most of the people who are going everywhere who are going to these other places and preaching the gospel, they're not the apostles. They're not the ones who were with Jesus for three years. They're not the trained elite, you know, ministers. They're just the average everyday folks who are going out to different places and sharing the good news of what Jesus has done. You see, all of us are called to share the gospel. It's not just for pastors or just for evangelists or just for whoever we like to categorize in that every believer is called to share the good news of what Jesus has done. And we should do that wherever we're at. The believers in the early church are a good example of preaching the gospel when they are in Jerusalem. And as they're scattered to other places, they continue to do that wherever they're at. Well, now we're going to see some more of the good that God brought from this persecution and from this scattering We're going to see a good work that God does through a man named Philip. Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. If you remember Stephen was one of the people chosen to take care of the widows. There were seven men. Another one of those men were Philip. And so Philip was one of the men, just like Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, who who was taking care of these widows. And now because of this persecution, he leaves Jerusalem and he heads up to Samaria. And he starts preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, I think it's important to note who the Samaritans were. You see, the Samaritans had issues with the Jews, and Jews had issues with the Samaritans. 600 years before this time, the Assyrians conquered the northern part of Israel. And they removed all the wealthy Jews, and they left just the poor Jews, and then they brought into the northern part of Israel a bunch of pagan Gentiles. These pagan Gentiles intermarried with these poor class of Jews, and the result of that were children who then 
didn't worship the true God of Israel anymore. They kind of had this mixed uh, religious belief of pagan practices kind of mixed with Judaism. And, you know, so the Jews kind of viewed them as compromising half-breeds who didn't truly believe in the true God. And there was huge racism and prejudice towards this group of people. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. And if you remember in the Gospels, they would actually not even walk through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans so much that they the quickest place to the northern part of Israel would have go straight through Samaria, but instead they'd go all the way around it to they didn't even want to touch the the place where these people lived and that's where they were so shocked when Jesus is at the with the woman at the well from Samaria because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along I bring this up because understand Philip's a Jew most likely growing up with some kind of prejudice towards this group of people most likely having some kind of dislike prior to his conversion with Jesus Christ a group of people that he probably struggled with, but yet he doesn't let that stop him from sharing with them. He doesn't let that stop him from going there and proclaiming Christ's love to them. Philip's now accepted Christ and a change has occurred. There's no more racism or prejudice or hatred toward this group of people. He just sees them as a group of people in need of the gospel and he shares it with them. I think that's important for us to note because here in America, there's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of hatred from one group to the other. And sadly, many Christians, when they get saved, they bring a lot of those feelings with them into the body of Christ. And, and it, it takes time oftentimes for them to, to change those feelings and to no longer have those prejudices and those hatreds towards different groups of people. But you know what? There is no place for those things in the body of Christ. There's no place for those things in seeking to reach the world for Jesus because all it does is hinder us from doing that. Whatever someone's religious background is, whatever their cultural background is, whatever, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're straight, whether they're gay, whether they have some different political belief system than us, if they're lost, they need Jesus. And we need to be willing to share it with them regardless of how different we are, how different we believe. The ultimate thing is we need to recognize they need the gospel and be willing to share it with them. Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor and evangelist, said, Winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. The Holy Spirit will move the lost by first moving you. If you can rest without their being saved, they will rest too. But if you are filled with an agony for them, if you cannot bear that they should be lost, you will soon find that they are uneasy too. I hope you will get into such a state that you will dream about your child or your neighbor perishing for lack of Christ and start up at once and begin to cry, God, give me converts or I die. Then you will have converts. Are you a weeper of souls? When you think of those that you know or even those that you don't that are lost and if they die today, they are going to hell, does that impact you? Does that move you? Does it something where you cry out to God saying, Lord, give me opportunities to share the wonderful good news of the gospel with them? Billy Graham, one of the most famous evangelist of all time said, universally people are struggling with four basic needs. First, people are spiritually empty. Barbara Walters asked Richard Dreyfus, if you could have one wish, what would you wish for? Richard Dreyfus says, every time I have a birthday, every time I blow out candles, every time I see a shooting star, I wish for the same thing. I wish for inner security. Richard Dreyfus, an accomplished actor, a wealthy man, you know, he recognizes there's something missing. 
I need this inner security. He doesn't realize it, but he's spiritually empty. Number two, people are lonely. Even popular people are lonely. Albert Einstein said this, it's strange to be known so universally, yet be so lonely. That's a sentiment that many famous people share, especially after they reach fame and fortune. Elvis Presley, one of the most famous musicians of all time, says, I feel so alone. The night is quiet for me. I'd love to be able to sleep, but I feel so lonely. I have no need for all this life. Number three, people are guilty of sin. And we all feel guilty because of it. That's the reality of it. We're sinners and we feel guilty because we're sinners. Number four, people are afraid to die. Actor Dennis Hopper was asked what his greatest fear was and he gave a one word answer, death. You know, you look at statistically speaking what people are most afraid of. Death is up there at the top with public speaking and other things of that nature. But death is something that so many people greatly fear. You know, something that we need to understand is that as Christians, we have the answer to these four basic needs that everyone is dealing with. And that answer is Jesus. People are spiritually empty. Why? Because they haven't accepted Jesus Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. People are lonely because they haven't accepted Christ. People are guilty of sin because they haven't accepted Jesus' sacrifice for their sin on the cross. People fear death because they don't know the truth that if they accept Jesus Christ, there is no need to fear death because now they can have a relationship with God for all eternity in heaven. You see, as Christians, we have the cure to this world's greatest needs, and that cure is Jesus Christ and what he's done for this world on the cross for our sins. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to tell this world about the cure that Jesus has brought to their needs? We recognize their needs. We see their needs. But are we willing to say, you know what? Your ultimate needs are these. And there's only one cure, one thing that will meet those needs. And that is Jesus Christ. Especially if it means going out of our comfort zones and sharing with people we don't like or sharing with people we have some kind of issue with. Are we willing to do that? Philip was willing to get out of his comfort zone. He was willing to go to a place that maybe he never traveled to before in Samaria. He was willing to reach this group of people. He was willing to share the gospel with a different race, a different culture, a people with a sinful way of living. And because he was obedient to do that, we see God does great things there in Samaria. We're told the multitudes listened to Philip with one accord and heeded the things he shared. And the Holy Spirit empowers Philip to start to heal and do miraculous works among those in Samaria. And we're told there was great joy in that city. So Philip is now receiving a wonderful response from the Samaritans as he shares the gospel, as God miraculously uses him. But now Luke's going to share with us about an individual in Samaria who also had supernatural power like Philip, but his supernatural power did not come from the Holy Spirit. It came from Satan. Let's see who this man was and what transpires. Verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. 
And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So Luke tells us there's this man in Samaria named Simon, and Simon was a sorcerer. And Simon had supernatural power to do things. And that supernatural power, like with any sorcerer, came from a demonic presence. He was given this supernatural power from Satan. And as he displayed this power, the the Samaritans, they were astonished by him. And notice what they say of him. They say, this man is the great power of God. And so they heed what he has to say. He's this man that, you know, was very popular among the people. And they, they kind of lifted him up as a deity in their midst. Well, the Samaritans wrongly assumed that because Simon had real supernatural power, it was from God. The reality was, yes, he had supernatural power, but his supernatural power did not come from God. It came from Satan. You know, as believers, we need to understand that Satan and his demons, they have power. And they have power that they can give to people who worship and follow them. Sorcery, witchcraft, the occult, these are real things. There is real supernatural demonic power that's connected with him. And you know what? As believers, we should never get involved with it because they're satanic, they're demonic, they're evil. You know, we have in our culture today a lot of TV shows, a lot of books, a lot of movies, you know, TV shows like Charmed movies or books like Harry Potter that like to portray sorcery and witchcraft in a positive and negative light in the sense that there are such things as good witches and good sorcerers and bad witches and bad sorcerers. But the reality is that's not true. The Bible's very clear. There's only one category, bad. There's bad sorcerers and there's bad witches because they're all following Satan. Their powers from Satan. They're following Satan. There's no such thing as good in that way. And there are Christians who get sucked into that because they think, well, I'm not going to be part of the bad group. I'm going to be part of the good group. Well, there is no good group. It's all demonic, evil stuff that you need to steer clear of. So before, so Simon, he has this satanic supernatural power. The Samaritans are astonished by him. They're listening to him. They're thinking he's great. And then Philip shows up on the scene and Philip is doing supernatural works. But his supernatural works are far superior to the works of Simon. And the people are drawn to Philip and they're moved by what God is doing. And they hear the gospel message and they're accepting Jesus Christ and they're changed. And Simon is seeing this. He's seeing the power of the Holy Spirit versus the power of Satan. And something always to note is the power of the Holy Spirit is always greater than the power of Satan. And Simon recognizes, wow, there's some real supernatural power greater than mine transpiring in my midst. And so Simon is amazed, and we're told in verse 13, then Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized and continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So God's doing a great work in Samaria, and now the message and the news of this great work gets back to Jerusalem, and the apostles hear what's happening. Let's see what happens in verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles get news that the Samaritans are having this little revival going on and people are getting saved. And so they send Peter and John to go up there and and to see what's going on and to assist Philip with the work that God is doing. And when Peter and John show up, they, they see the Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen upon the Samaritans. They had accepted Jesus. They'd been baptized, but they haven't had this empowerment 
of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John lay hands on them and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And after that happens, these new believers in Christ, they receive this empowering work of the Holy Spirit in their life. If you remember back in the beginning of Acts, I mentioned this reality, and here's another example of, you know, we see in uh, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and they have this empowering work on the apostles and the followers of Jesus. And then soon after that, the apostles who've already believed in Jesus, who have already been filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered with the Holy Spirit, were told that they're filled again, they're empowered again, and given boldness to preach the gospel, and then filled again to do miraculous signs and wonders. And, and we see this pattern again of here's a group of people, they've accepted Jesus, they've been baptized, and obviously we know from Scripture, once you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit fills your life, He indwells you, but there's this extra empowering work that we see hadn't happened yet. Peter and John are there, and this empowering work hadn't taken place. They say, you know what, we're going to pray for these guys that the Holy Spirit comes and moves in power with them. And as they lay hands on them and they pray for them, the Holy Spirit moves and empowers them. And Simon sees this. He sees this work that God is doing as Peter and John lay hands and pray for people. And notice how he responds to this in verse 18 and 19. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees this amazing work of God happening. He sees Peter and John show up. They're laying hands on people. They're praying for people. The empowering work of the Holy Spirit is coming on people's lives. He sees that and he says, guys, here's some money. Give me that power. I want that power so I can pray for people and I can do that for people. Now remember Simon. Remember what he once was. He was a sorcerer who was popular because of the demonic power that he had. Now he sees power from God, and he wants that power, but not for the right motives, not for the right reasons, but ultimately so that he can use it for his own purposes and his own pleasures and his own ends. Well, notice how Peter responds to Simon's request. Verse 20. And when Simon saw that through the laying out of hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered money. And Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you were poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Peter rebukes Simon, tells him to repent, that Simon didn't have the right heart and why he wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon's heart motives were wrong. They were wicked. And Peter tells him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You know, essentially, Simon wanted to be in charge of the Holy Spirit. He regarded the Holy Spirit as a power that he could use as he willed for his own selfish gain instead of a person who would rule his life for God's glory. You know, sadly, in the church world today, there are many people with the heart of Simon when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. They only want supernatural power for their own gain. They want to gain money. They want to gain prestige. They want to gain fame. They want to gain recognition. 
They desire for the power of the Holy Spirit is really completely selfish and all about them. They see the Holy Spirit like Simon as a power that they can use for their own selfish gain instead of a person who will rule their life for God's glory. You know, I grew up in a church and I mentioned this many times as I share that, you know, people who saw the Holy Spirit in this way that Simon does, he was just a power to them they wanted to be in charge of for their own selfish gain. But something important for us to understand is we're not in charge of the Holy Spirit. He's in charge of us. We don't dictate how he moves and how he uses his power. That's something that he chooses to do. And it's not ever for our selfish gain. It's always for the glory of God. As I mentioned earlier in the book of Acts, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is for four main purposes. First, to bring glory to God. Second, to be witnesses of Jesus. Third, to boldly preach the gospel. And fourth, to edify the body of Christ. And as you look at those four main purposes of why we should desire and want and use the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll notice it's all for God and for others. It's not about us and me and what I get from it. When someone desires the power of the Holy Spirit for their own gain like Simon did, they've completely missed the point. And they will abuse the power of the Holy Spirit if it's given to them. So Philip went to Samaria. God was doing amazing things through him. The apostles come and God continues to do amazing things. But now God's going to move Philip on. He has somewhere else that he wants Philip to go. Let's see where God leads him. Verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit of the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So God is doing a great work in and through Philip there in Samaria. There's as many revival taking place. The Spirit of God is being poured out. Supernatural signs and wonders are taking place. And during this time of revival, the Spirit of God says, or an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So Philip, he's up in Samaria, and he's meant to go down towards Jerusalem and continue down this desert road all the way to Gaza, down where there's very little people out in the desert. So he's in Samaria. He's in the hub where all these people are there. The work of the Lord is happening and moving. And he's told to now go to a place where there are very few people out in the desert. Now, from Philip's human wisdom, this must have seemed like a bad idea. Uh, am I hearing you right, Lord? You're wanting me to leave this revival. You're wanting me to leave these new converts. You're wanting to leave this great work that you're doing here in Samaria. And you're wanting me to go down on a desert road to Gaza where very few people are. Am I, am I getting this right? Uh, this doesn't seem like this is a good plan. It seems like I would be best suited to stay here among all that's happening. But I want you to note that when the Lord told Philip to go to the desert, we're told he arose and went. He didn't argue. He just was obedient to what the Lord was leading him to do, obedient to where the Lord was leading him to go. God called him to go. And even if it seemed like, you know what, I think there's a greater need for me here. Hey, Lord, if you want me to go, I'm going to be obedient and go where you call me to go. 
Something important for us to understand is the most important place for you and I to be is where God calls us to be. You know, as a missionary for many years, so many people be like, oh, you're in Scotland, how amazing, you know, this must be so great to, to have that. And thinking like, well, I'm only here in the States and, you know, God can't use me and, you know, you have such a greater calling. No, the greatest place for us to be is where God's called us to be. And that's the place in which God wants to use us. You know, when I was doing an internship in Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria, God clearly made me aware that he wanted me to plant a church in Scotland. I'd led an outreach there, and he wanted me to go to Glasgow, and he made that very abundant to me. But, you know, right before I went, I had a pastor who was trying to recruit people to come to the Ukraine. He said, you know what, we got a church in the Ukraine. It's got a couple hundred people. The pastor has left. It needs a pastor. It's got, you know, everything that you need. It's even as an assistant pastor there. And you know what? Unlike Europe and the Ukraine, all you need is a couple hundred dollars a month for supports, where in Scotland you need a couple thousand dollars a month in supports. And so kind of everything there, you know, here you go. If you come here, you can pastor this church. It's, you know, everything's already together. But, you know, I told him, hey, God's told me and called me to go to Scotland. And so this guy asking me, he says, well, what's waiting for you in Scotland? Are there people waiting for you? No. Is there a church waiting for you? No. Well, why go there when you have all this happening in the Ukraine? And ultimately, I took him to passages like this. Acts chapter 8. Philip, in this great ministry, great things happening. God says, get up and go. You just got to be obedient to God's call. And so obviously I did not go to the Ukraine, but went to where God was calling me in Scotland. We need to be like Philip. We need to be obedient to God's call wherever it is, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if it's, yeah, well, Lord, I think here is better. Well, if he says move, he says go, he said to that group, then we need to be obedient to follow what God's calling us to do. So Philip's obedient to the call of God. He travels on this desert road and he comes across this very powerful, wealthy Ethiopian eunuch who was sent by the queen of Ethiopia. He was the man over all of her treasury. So this man probably has a pretty big entourage coming with him since he's got a load of cash with him. But notice that we're told that he is returning from Jerusalem and his purpose of being in Jerusalem was to worship God. So here's a man that's obviously searching for God. He's come to Jerusalem and he's, he's there to worship God. And notice as he's in Jerusalem, he picks up something, the scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Now, back in that time, people didn't have all the books of the Bible to have a full scroll of a book. You know, you had to be wealthy to get that in the begin with, but he has this scroll, this whole book of Isaiah. And as he's there traveling back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, he's reading through the book of Isaiah, this man who's searching for God. You know, something I think is great about God is whenever someone is searching for him, he always reveals himself to them. Here's this one man in the desert searching for God, and God takes Philip, who's in the middle of this revival, and says, I want you to go out to this guy. Well, why? Because he's searching for me, Philip, and I'm going to send you to him because I want to reach this one man with the gospel. So Philip is sent there, and the Holy Spirit says to Philip, hey, go and overtake this chariot. Well, let's see what takes place. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture where he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? 
Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. So the Holy Spirit tells Philip, I want you to run and overtake this chariot. Now understand, a wealthy man, probably with a large entourage, traveling in a chariot, and here's Philip cruising the desert road, run and overtake this guy. And I'm sure there's like, really? You know, how do I start this conversation? This is kind of awkward. You're going to run up next to this chariot and kind of, you know, those are things where oftentimes we're in the park or we're different places. And the Lord says, I want you to talk with this person. And we get that fear and we're not bold and willing to go. And, you know, obviously for this Ethiopian, it's great that Philip was obedient. He runs to this chariot. And as he comes to the chariot, he sees that this Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah's scroll. You know, Warren Wiersbe says something great, a great pastor and commentator. He says, when the Spirit brings a prepared servant and a contrite sinner together, there will be a harvest. Philip is that prepared servant. The Ethiopian is that contrite sinner. He's reading the book of Isaiah. Philip's there. Do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch responds, how can I unless someone guides me? Come on in my chariot and tell me what this means. And notice what he's reading. Of all places in Isaiah that he could be reading, he's in chapter 53, a chapter completely focused on the Messiah. And he's reading, we're told in verses 7 and 8, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? This is speaking about Jesus and what he would go through. And so he's reading this. What does it mean? And we're told that Philip starts from this scripture and then starts to preach Jesus to this man. God sent Philip to preach the gospel to this one man because everyone is important to God. You know, Philip probably thought, why are you sending me to this desert when so much is happening in Samaria? But God sent Philip to the desert to share the gospel with one Ethiopian eunuch who was searching for God because God cares about every individual. If one person is searching, he is going to go and reach them. God wants everyone to hear the gospel and is willing to go out of his way to send someone just to one person. God wants us to have that same heart for people. One person getting saved should be enough for us to do whatever God's calling us to do. You know, sometimes I know, especially in ministry, you hear pastors, and then I've even been guilty of it. Well, if there's a big crowd that's going to come, you know, I'll be excited and surely I'll proclaim things, but just go to one person, just share with one person. And we get this kind of mindset, well, it's not enough. You know, it's not worth my time. It's not worth my effort for just one individual. Now, a hundred or a thousand, surely it is, but just one, no. And sadly, that's oftentimes how we feel because we don't have the heart of God that says, you know what, the value of one person's life is enough for me to do whatever it takes to go wherever God leads me to reach that one individual. Max Lucado, a Christian author, wrote of a true story of a man preaching to just one person. John Eglin had never preached a sermon in his life. It wasn't that he didn't want to, he just never needed to. But then one morning he did. The snow left his town of Colchester, England, buried in white. When he awoke on that January Sunday in 1850, he thought of staying home. Who would go to church in such weather? But he reconsidered he was, after all, a deacon. And if the deacons didn't go, who would? So he put on his boots and hat and coat and walked the six miles to the Methodist church. He wasn't the only member considering staying home. In fact, he was one of only a few who came. Only 13 people were present, 12 members and one visitor. Even the minister was snowed in. Someone suggested they go home, but 
Eglin would hear nothing of that. They'd come to this far, they would have a service. Besides, they had a visitor, a 13-year-old boy, but who would preach? Eglin was the only deacon, it fell to him, and so he did. His sermon lasted only 10 minutes, but the gospel was shared, and the 13-year-old boy accepted Christ. That boy's name was Charles Spurgeon, who became one of the greatest preachers and evangelists the world has ever had. John Eglin was willing to preach the gospel because one visitor was at the church. He was willing to share with one man, and because of his obedience, Charles Spurgeon gets saved, and God uses Charles Spurgeon to save thousands of people. God wants everyone to hear the gospel, and are we willing to share with just that one person? Are you willing to be that one person that God sends you to them? You know, there might be one family member, there might be one co-worker, there might be one neighbor, one individual that you know that God has impressed upon your heart that you need to go share with them, and are you willing to do that? Are you willing to obey God and share Jesus with them? Philip, he's obedient. He goes and shares the gospel with this one Ethiopian eunuch. Well, let's see how this man responds. Verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded that the chariot stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Luke doesn't record the gospel message that Philip preaches, but we see from the response of this Ethiopian eunuch that definitely Philip preached the gospel. And he also preached the importance of being baptized as well, because the first thing the eunuch says is, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so the eunuch commands this chariot to stop and in front of all the people, which probably was a large entourage considering his prestige and the wealth that he was bringing, he gets baptized by Philip. If you remember back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached the gospel message, we're told the, the crowd was moved and they respond with, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter responds. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So when the crowd says, what do we need to do? Peter says, there's two things. First, you need to repent of your sins. To repent means to turn away from your sins and turn to God. So that's the first thing you need to do. But Peter also says, you know what? You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism is an outward statement of a person's belief and complete trust in Christ. Baptism isn't something that saves you, but it's something that's an outward demonstration of what has transpired already in your life and that testimony to the world that you're following him. And it's a great opportunity to share your testimony with unsaved family and friends. Every believer needs to be baptized because God commands it. It's not a suggestion. It's something that says you need to do. So if you've accepted Christ and you've never been baptized, come talk with me. We'll arrange for that to take place. And it's an opportunity then for you to invite unsaved loved ones, unsaved family, unsaved friends, and share with them the gospel. Share with them the fact that you are following Jesus. So after Philip baptized the Ethiopian, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. So the Ethiopian saw him no more and went on rejoicing. 
Here's another miraculous thing that takes place. Philip is obedient. He travels all the way down to to uh, the desert. So he's down here in Gaza. And then we're told the Spirit just takes him away. Literally, like just, boom, you're gone. And now all of a sudden, he's north there in Atatus, starting to preach the gospel again. He's like miraculously transported somewhere else. And the Ethiopian unit's by himself, rejoicing that he's now saved, and he heads back to Ethiopia, and Philip just continues preaching the gospel. He travels all the way up to Caesarea uh, and continuing to share the gospel message with people, and people continue to get saved. So here in Acts chapter 8, we see a, a big change. Great persecution comes upon the church, headed up by Saul. But God uses this persecution for his glory and his good, People are now moving out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And God specifically uses a man named Philip, willing to obey God's call to go and share the gospel with whoever God called him to. Even if that meant preaching to people he had prejudice against or didn't like or had issue with, he was willing to go and share the gospel with them. And the question I want us to leave with this morning is, are we willing to be like Philip? And obey God's call to share the gospel with whoever God calls us to share it with. And if the answer is no, why? What's keeping us from doing that? What's keeping us from being obedient to that? Do we actually recognize that these people that we claim to love, if they die today, they're going to go to hell? What's stopping us from giving them the cure, from giving them the good news of what Jesus has done? I would say, If that's the reality, that you're not willing, pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God would give you boldness. Pray that God would do whatever it needs to be done, that you be willing to reach those people that he puts in your path, that he calls you to share the gospel with. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that you are willing to reach just one person. You were willing to reach me. You were willing to reach those of us here, Lord, who have accepted you, that you were willing to send people to share the gospel with us. Lord, help us not to forget that. That someone came and someone shared the good news. Someone loved us enough to proclaim the good news of what Jesus Christ has done so that we would hear it and know it and be willing to uh, accept it and be changed for all eternity. As Romans tells us, Lord, how are they going to hear unless someone is sent to preach the gospel to them? I pray, Lord, that you would give us the heart to be those people who are willing to go, to be like Philip when you call, that we answer the call. When you tell us to go minister or share with this person or that person, that that we're willing to be obedient. That we would remember, Lord, that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind, Lord. And as the fears come of what they might think or what they might say or how do I start this conversation, Lord, that you would help us to overcome those fears and just boldly go and do what you've called us to do and watch how you'll work in the hearts and lives of people that you call us to reach to. God, help us to be more like Philip. I pray for us as individuals. I pray for us as a church as a whole, Lord, that we would be more impactful in reaching lost people here, Lord, in the surrounding areas of where we're located, Lord, in Pasadena and Deer Park, Lord, and uh, Friendswood and League City and Alvin and, Lord, all these areas around us, God, the Houston, that, that you would just help us, Lord, at work with our families, with our neighbors, with our friends, Lord. We have so many people 
in our lives that do not know you. Lord, give us the boldness to reach them, to share with them, to show them your love, to proclaim to them the good news, and to let them know the cure to their huge needs that they have, that they are spiritually empty and that they fear death and they don't need to because you died so they wouldn't have to go to hell. You took the punishment for their sins so they wouldn't have to. Let us proclaim that truth, Lord. We are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for that you sent your son to us. Lord, help us to not just hold on to that selfishly, but be willing to share that with this world that also needs to hear that message too. We ask that you would just give us your love for people, your boldness to reach those people. Empower us to do that, Father, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we end in a song of worship? And a reminder for those of you who weren't here for announcements, this Thursday we're going to have our...